Good Bone Health makes active aging possible. Join us for inspiring conversations from diverse perspectives in osteoporosis, from patients, healthcare providers, caregivers, policymakers, researchers, advocates, and innovators. Protect your ability to live your best life. The information and opinions expressed in Bone Talk are not intended to replace the services of trained and qualified health professionals or to be a substitute for medical advice of physicians. You may review the National Osteoporosis Foundation's full medical disclaimer at nof.org. Hi everyone, I'm Barbara Hannah Grufferman, Bone Health Ambassador and Trustee of the National Osteoporosis Foundation. Welcome to another episode of Bone Talk. Ah, happiness. We all want it, not just for ourselves, but for our kids, partners, loved ones. I just want to be happy is a common refrain. And for good reason. Not only does it make us feel good, but there's a clear link between happiness, health, and longevity. A 2015 study found a strong correlation between happiness and longer life, regardless of health, education level, marital status, or even your finances. There's a famous NUN study, which is an ongoing project that started in 1986 and is being conducted by the University of Kentucky. And it's kept tabs on hundreds of nuns over many decades. The research shows that the happiest nuns were least likely to develop dementia or Alzheimer's, suggesting that happier brains may have a built-in defense system. And a Harvard study demonstrates that people who are glass half full kind of folks are less likely to develop heart disease than those who view the world as glass half empty. So yes, science clearly says, cheer up everyone. But happiness, mm, it's complicated. Some of it is based on genetics, giving you a slight edge as to whether you wake up in a good mood or a bit of a sourpuss. But here's something that should make you happy. As it turns out, there's a lot we can do to nudge our emotions to the sunnier side of the street, no matter what genes your mom and dad passed on to you. Our guest today has studied a very special kind of happiness and then wrote a best-selling book about it so we can all benefit from his research. John Leland has spent 30 plus years in journalism, going from chronicling youth culture to writing about the oldest old. He's a graduate of Columbia College, worked as a senior editor at Newsweek and editor-in-chief of Details Magazine before joining the New York Times in 2000. And in 2015, he wrote an amazing year-long series following six people over the age of 85, which became the basis for his best-selling book, Happiness is a Choice You Make, Lessons from a Year Among the Oldest Old a New York Times bestseller. And as he wrote in the Times, and I quote, no work I have ever done has brought me as much joy and hope or changed my outlook on life as profoundly. John, thank you so much for joining me today on Bone Talk. Oh, thanks for having me. Okay, one of the first sentences that struck me in your wonderfully encouraging book was this. The good news, I always like good news, the good news about getting old is that there is good news. You go on to write, older people report a greater sense of well-being and fewer negative emotions than younger people. So, John, tell us how your interviews and research 
support this premise. Well, it's interesting because the way we usually write about old age is we'll look at uh, some new bit of research and it'll tell us there's some new finding someplace. And then we'll go out and find some people who correspond to that finding. And then we'll, we'll interview them and plug them into a story about it. And with this project, I did everything the other way around. I went out and found some people and I talked to them about their lives. And then I went out and looked to see if there was any research to, to, to show me whether they were outliers or they were in the norm. And I went into this project where I followed six people for a year and I thought that I would just write about their hardships because I thought that's all there was to say about old age. And, you know, they'd fall, they'd break a hip, they'd start to lose their memory, they'd become socially isolated, all the things that we're always doing stories about. And what I found was that they had a lot of those problems that I expected, but they all kind of went on with their lives despite that. And they did so with a sense of resilience and joy that I wasn't expecting at all. And so then you start to look at the research and you find that, well, duh, study after study after study after study has shown us that older people are just more content with their lives. They're less stressed. They're less afraid of death. They're better able to deal with, with loss. And maybe because they have dealt with so much loss over the course of a long lifetime, they're able to appreciate the good things more. And also they're able to not get knocked off their bearings when they experience new loss because they know they've recovered from so much before. Mm -hmm. My understanding is from reading your book that when you started to seek out those elders that you wanted to interview for your your time series, which then turned into your book, your own life was in a bit of turmoil. And I gathered you weren't feeling particularly happy yourself. So how did this journey and your interviews with these oldest old help you to find your own sense of happiness? Uh, as I say, it was the last thing I expected. And I would go into a lot of my interviews. I was in the middle of a divorce. I, I had a problem with my foot in the course of the year. I was in a, a walking boot for a fair bit of it. I was just kind of like living alone for the first time since I'd been a kid. And I was just out of sorts. And I would go into these and my mother is she just turned 90 and so she was having her problems and I'm the main caregiver for her. Mm -hmm. And I would go into these interviews just in a bad mood about something or other. And I would come out feeling completely lifted up by it. And I wouldn't quite understand it because it's not like we were discussing, you know, traipsing through the fields of flowers. Often we'd be discussing very serious things like including one of the men I followed wanted to die. But there was something about the resilience and the strategies for getting through the day that the elders were modeling for me that without my understanding, it was rubbing off on me. I was just leaving them feeling much happier than I'd been going in. It took me the, almost the full year to figure out that that was going on and that it was going on again and again and again. And then I started to think about, well, what is this? What is going on? And you had feelings of happiness and maybe more joy in your life, or was it more feelings of contentment? And also, is that what your elders that you interviewed were feeling? Because I'm curious about that. How do you define happiness versus contentment? What's the difference? And then how would you describe the people you interviewed from, from that particular lens? 
Well, I think there's different dimensions to happiness. There's that momentary, oh, I'm really thrilled right now. I just got an ice cream soda. There's a, there's that kind of happiness. And there's, a, I feel my life is pretty good. All in all, all things said and done, I think I'm happy. And that's like not your happy afternoon, but your happy 10-year period or your happy lifespan. And then there might be a spiritual happiness too. I'm, I feel I have a purpose in my life. I'm doing well. And that might be looking at your whole life from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. So I think those different elements go into happiness. And each of the people applied them differently and they looked at their lives differently. And I wouldn't say that moment-to-moment -moment joy defined any of them, really. The closest they, they came was the filmmaker Jonas Mekas. Jonas Mekas was the one semi-famous person in my group. The others were all regular New Yorkers to the extent that there is such a thing. And Jonas, you couldn't uh, shake Jonas's mood for anything. So he was kind of the, the most philosophically, unchangeably joyous person. And he'd made a movie calling himself a happy man. <laughs> and in, in a couple of weeks, when I attend his memorial, it's called Memorial for a Happy Man. <laughs> That's wonderful. I think that when reading your book and, and talking to so many people who are over 50, maybe not the oldest old as you interviewed, but you know people more in midlife, I feel that there is a greater sense of contentment. That's why I wanted to ask you that than, than happiness. I think a lot of us just feel that happiness is in some ways kind of overrated, like we're supposed to be jumping up and down for joy constantly, when in fact it is as you described, looking at your life, uh, appreciating the feelings of gratitude for those in it, those we love, gratitude for what we have, you know, as opposed to focusing on what we don't. And I think that all of that really kind of results in a sense of contentment, which is a wonderful, positive state to be in. And when I think about that for myself, I think about, well, it's not so much happiness, but I, I want to always feel content with who I am, what I have, but always striving for a bit more or, you know, new adventures and the like, not just to kind of sit on laurels. But again, I just feel that feeling of contentment should be discussed more in society than, than happiness per se. Well, I, I think if you want to be unhappy in this world, chase happiness every minute of your life. It's, every morning should be Christmas morning. It's just not going to happen for you. And there's no, you're putting stresses on yourself. You're having expectations that can't be met. Real happiness, genuine happiness is closer to what you're describing as contentment. That sense that I'm grateful for the things I have in this world. I'm accepting of the things that I don't have. You know, I'm aspirational for the things that I would want, but I'm not eating myself up over them. Mm -hmm. And I'm dealing with the setbacks that I go through because everybody goes through setbacks. Setbacks are just a part, part of, of life to be human a part of life and I do think that as we get older and this is one of the many benefits of aging in my view and I'm sure yours too is that we have a much greater appreciation for all of that we have an appreciation for what we do have and the people in our lives and and we don't miss the maybe lost opportunities as we once did. I feel like that's part of maturing as well as accepting while, while we still aspire to seek out new things or new experiences and the like. But it, it's a wonderful thing. It's a, it, aging has so many benefits, and for sure that is one of them. <laughs> 
at the National Osteoporosis Foundation, we encourage everyone at every age to embrace healthy habits, right? Especially moving your body, eating well, so our bones stay strong as we get older. I mean, my own mother fell and broke her hip a little over a year ago and has had you know horrible medical issues ever since then. Her life is, she's debilitated at this point. Her life has changed, my life has changed. So this is something that we as an organization really want everyone to avoid going forward. But anyway, I've seen many studies, as you have, that show a very strong correlation between exercise, a feeling of happiness, and also longevity. So what are your thoughts on connecting these dots based on your research and interviews? You know, it's a mutually reinforcing cycle. There's two people will, will fall and break a hip, and one will have a sense that, oh, gosh, it's all over for me. It's just going to be a downhill thing. And the other will feel, you know what? I've had my setbacks before, and I bounce back from them. I'm going to bounce back from this. The hips are the same. The bones are the same. That one person goes out and does their shopping. They go out and see friends. They're exercising their lungs. They're getting that blood circulating. They make people happy when they're with them. People want to see them more. They call them more. So they're going out shopping again. They're taking care of their plants. They're doing all these things. And it's a mutually reinforcing virtuous circle. The other person says, you know, I'm on my way down. I don't want to go out because I'm afraid to walk. I hope I don't break my hip again. I'm not going to eat well. I don't sleep that well because I don't get tired. And now I have this weird schedule and I'm up late watching TV and the TV is stressing me out because it's all bad news on the TV. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's a, also a mutually reinforcing cycle, but heading in the opposite direction. If you think about like, what's the magic drug that we're all waiting for? In some ways, it's it's this, whatever story it is we can tell about what's going on in our lives. And we spend so little attention dealing with that as, as a healthcare industry. And you think about the clinicians, if they took time to talk to people about their lives, they're punished for it. If they look for the box to check on their electronic medical records to show the time they spent talking to somebody about whether they're going shopping and taking care of their plants, that box does not exist on their electronic medical records. So we have this great healthcare system that punishes people for delivering health. That's a really an important point you bring up. I mean, the healthcare system really is not set up to accommodate the aging society that we're, that we're confronting, that we're in right now and that we're confronting. We all know that, which is why so much of it falls to families. Now, you know, a lot of the people that you interviewed in your book, they were living alone and they didn't really have a big support system around them. And that's actually could be quite detrimental to successful aging. As we know, one of the most important things that and, uh, someone who is aging can have in their lives is a support system, is that social interaction. Because all of that, getting back to the points you were making before about the, the mental attitude someone has if they do fall and break a hip and like, how do they approach that? Having that positive reinforcement from a social system is really critical to their well-being, to their successful aging, to their recovering more quickly or at all. I worry. I worry a great deal about this, John, when I think about our country, and really the world, but our country specifically, and are we ready? Are we really prepared for the true aging of America. And I, you know, I, I think you can agree with me that we're really not. And again, it all, most of it does fall 
back to the families, if there is a family. Let's get back to some good news. The second half of your book, which I, again, I just loved, is devoted to the lessons that you learned from each one of the people that you interviewed, which was so well done because they were all such unique individuals. The only thing they had in common really was that they were over 85. So give us some of your highlights, John. Well, it's a great point you make that people at the end of their life are even more diverse than they are in the middle or the beginning of their lives. You Knowing somebody's 80, what you know about that person is they're 80. You don't know anything else about their lives. But some of the lessons were so valuable to me, and I'm still remembering to incorporate them in my life. But I think the most important one of them as a practice was gratitude. Mm-hmm. I, there was a man named Fred Jones, 87, when I met him, living alone in a walk-up apartment, you know, losing two toes to gangrene. Mm-hmm. He's got to walk those stairs with this terrible infection. And he just said, my favorite part of the day is waking up in the morning and saying, thank God for another day. And it just kind of floored me that Fred had that attitude. But that gratitude, that simple practice of gratitude, which we know a lot about from research, even when it's done mechanically, you know, has an enormous impact on our emotional health and also on our physical health. We sleep better. We all have something to be thankful for. Everybody, Everybody does. does. Everybody. You know, we all woke up this morning and we weren't in incredible pain. Or if we were, maybe some people are. But we all woke up this morning and things weren't as bad as they could be. Mm-hmm. And if we could just remember to just take half take a second, time. you know, half the time it takes to brush your teeth. Yes. You, you want to be better. efficient. <laughs> yeah. You're more optimistic about the future. You're more like the person you want to sit next to on an airplane, that person who's not a grouch about things. And there's the physical stuff, incredible. Lower blood pressure, better immune function, less inflammation, lower levels of stress hormones. It's the great pill we're all looking for. And it's just a little simple thank you. So that was like, that was Fred's lesson to me. And that was the simplest of them, the most mechanical. I can do that right away. I can put that into my life. And the most complicated of them, the one I'm still trying to figure out, comes from a woman named Ruth Willigan. Ruth was fiercely, fiercely independent. She's, she's 95 now. When her daughter will offer her an arm when they're walking, her impetus is to push it away. That's, that's kind of Ruth's mentality. And, but now she finds that she starts to need a little more help than she used to. Her daughters will sign checks for her. They'll do a little bit more for her. And, and they're developing this interdependence which is so powerful and so much stronger than the independence that we're all kind of raised on. You know, we're all told, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, do it on your own, the, do everything really you can the for yourself. Attitude. That's true. Yeah. So you're saying the lesson there with Ruth is that she was more open to asking for help and accepting help when she needed it, which is something I encourage everybody to do. And that's something, especially women who are just overwhelmed maybe with being a sa- in the sandwich generation, you know, taking mm-hmm. care of the aging parents and the kids and blah, 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 working and, and just don't ask for the help. Or if they're a straight caregiver, they don't ask for help. And this is something that's so very important. That's a good lesson. Yeah, because we're, we're bombarded by messages that, we need to be tough and not need help. We, we, you know, it's a sign of failure or weakness if you need help. What about saying you have tapped into a system that's much stronger than doing it on your own? It's an act of strength to accept help. I'm still trying to internalize that because I've, got, I've spent so much of my life internalizing the other. But when I'm able to do it and just say, you know what, I'm going to let someone do something for me now. 
and I'm not going to feel diminished by it. I feel like I can, I can tip my hat to Ruth when I do that, and I find that my day gets much better when I do that. You know, this thing about gratitude that you mentioned earlier, it's just so critical. And, I, you know, we've all seen the studies that show exactly what you said, what feeling gratitude, expressing gratitude, even if you just write it into a private journal, so only you see it, or even if you send a little note to somebody or an email or a, make a phone call to someone and expressing that gratitude, it does a great deal, not only for the person on the receiving end, but also for yourself on so many levels in terms of your own emotions and even your physical health. It's truly extraordinary. And we have seen the studies on that. So you learned a lot from all of these amazing people, but I tend to focus with my writing, my books more on you know midlife. And so I always try to learn from people like you and your research and your interviews and kind of apply it back to them. And so for me, and, and I'm right there too, people in midlife were stressed out. <laughs> no other way to put it. Working, children, aging parents, and so on and so forth. So, and it is a reality of modern life. This is our life. I mean, everybody's living longer. And so our aging parents are living longer, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, we need all the help we can get. I try my best to give it to them, but we're now looking to you. So what tips can you give our listeners so they understand that happiness or as we, you and I agreed, maybe better stated, a sense of contentment can be within our reach. And, and, you know, as they embrace some of these very simple lessons that you learned from the elders that you interviewed. Here's an exercise I like to do with people. You have five to 10 years to live. Imagine that now. Uh-huh. What's important to you? Who do you want to spend those years with? What, re- what do you want to hang on to? And what can you let go of? And that's the perspective that I think our elders were, are in, that 85 and up group. They have that. And if you can think about what's really important at the end of life, then it makes some of the things that we're striving for and that we're coveting and maybe like twisting ourselves up in knots over makes them look like they're not so important anymore. Mm-hmm. Think about what's a great life at 85 or 90. Couldn't agree more with that. And I, you know, when I turned 50, I had certain questions in my mind going forward, but then I realized when I turned 60, I'm 62 now, there was a real shift in my priorities. It's almost like I started with this process that you're recommending a little earlier than some of the people you interviewed. I have been thinking for the last year, I would say, about really what's important. What do I really want to do and accomplish? And I have discovered and sharing this with other people 60 and over that they are going through a similar reassessment. So, yeah, that's very, very interesting. And I I think that's an important lesson. You're at the end of your life. What do you want? Do you want to talk, think about your professional accomplishments mm-hmm. or do you want to have a great relationship with your child? That question of what, what do you want your legacy to be, right? Mm-hmm. Right? I think that's a kind of part and parcel of, of that. So, okay. You know, so- I spent a year with people and not one of them mentioned a professional accomplishment. Not I one. I believe that. And they had different careers and some had, had including Jonas Meckes, had a quite illustrious career and none of them mentioned that. It's amazing. And it was really, I work really, really hard at what I do. And it it just was a reminder to me to step back and say, yeah, but there's other stuff that's going to be more important in your life later on. 
I find that to be remarkable, what you just said. Really remarkable and surprising too. Really, because we do work so hard and this is what we're doing. So now you're saying that when we're older, we're going to look back at this and that will not be the main thing that we talk about, want people to remember us for. Very interesting. So really it's more who we are, not what we do, it sounds like. Right? Yeah. And we're told this at every step of our lives, but to see it lived out in the lives of these six elders just brought it home in a much more visceral and real way to me. So, John, what are the two or three things that you really, really, really want to make sure our listeners take away from this conversation today? We're all going to lose some things. Live for what you can still do, not for what you've lost. Whatever hardships you have, whatever age you are, it's up to you to decide what role you want to give them in, the, in your life, whether you want to make them, put them in the foreground and think they're the center of your life or just some things you encountered along the way. Measure yourself by how much you do for others, because in the end, that's going to be more rewarding than you know, what you're able to accrue or do for yourself. And if people could take three things away, those would be great. And I would leave you last with a scene from almost exactly four years ago. It's a jazz club in Greenwich Village. Jonas Meckes is on stage. He's 92 years old, and he's reading from a novel, and he says, have you ever thought about how amazing, really amazing life is? And to say this in a crowd of New Yorkers is <laughs> a brave thing to do. But brave thing. if we can just stop and say, you know what? Corny as it sounds, and, and Jonas, you know, Jonas is a Holocaust survivor. He hasn't gone through an easy life. That's right. uh, ever thought about how amazing, really amazing life is? Just a yeah. half a second to do that. And to do that. And th these are such important lessons, not just for us, for people who are kind of in midlife and looking toward aging more seriously, but also for any age. These are the kinds of lessons that I really like to share with my two daughters. I mentioned they're both in their 20s. And earlier you can learn such important life lessons, the better off we will all be. Thank yeah, you. and don't be, don't be afraid of getting old. You know, your ancestors didn't have that opportunity. It's a gift that we're given. That's true. And that's one of my favorite things, too, that that concept is that, no, I mean, it's only rather recently that we are actually experiencing the concept of aging. So, yes, it is a gift. John, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, your, some of your tips, some of the lessons learned from your wonderful, wonderful book. We'll have links to NOS resources as well as uh, to John's terrific book and the New York Times bestseller, again, called Happiness is a Choice You Make, Lessons from a Year Among the Oldest Old at www.nof.org. Everyone, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Bone Talk as much as I enjoyed talking with our wonderful guest, John Leland. We heard John's story and the good news about getting old is that there is good news. But we want to hear your stories too. So please visit www nof.org and go to share your story and tell us what's happening in your world because the more we stay connected the stronger we will be for more information about how to keep your bones strong and healthy for life please visit nof.org regularly for up-to-the-minute information lastly did you enjoy this episode possibly learn something new and helpful if so please do two things one, subscribe to Bone Talk so you never miss an episode. And two, 
please share with all your friends and family. Until next time, remember this, we can't control getting older, but we can control how we do it. Thank you and bye for now. Thank you for joining Bone Talk, the National Osteoporosis Foundation's podcast that shares information, strategies, and inspiration about good bone health that makes active aging possible. To learn more about bone health, to become involved and or help fuel NOF's mission with financial support, visit nof.org.